Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Heavier Than I Look. This is our sixth episode, which is crazy. And this podcast is dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Caruso, and I am your host. We had an exciting weekend this past weekend. The Notre Dame Fighting Irish beat Florida State last night, which was awesome. And we also had great weather, (laughs) which is not very common for South Bend, Indiana. But it was nice to be able to be with friends, to celebrate, and to enjoy the warmth. But I do not believe that warmth is going to last very much longer. Um, But we only have, I think, four or five weeks left of school which seems like a lot, but it goes by really fast, especially with finals at the end of the semester. So good luck to everyone who's, you know, making it through the last couple weeks of um, their fall semester in college. And we're going to make it through together. (laughs) Um, But today's episode of Heavier Than I Look is going to focus on eating disorders on college campuses, which I feel is a pretty relevant topic, but one not talked about a lot. So it's going to get the attention it deserves today. Today's episode specifically is dedicated to anyone who is struggling in silence. Whether you are struggling with an eating disorder or with mental illness, know that I feel for you and that I suffered in silence for nearly five years. And it was terrifying to open up and voice my pain. I thought I might make promises that I couldn't keep or that I would become a burden in another's life. But I now know that I've empowered myself with my own voice and platform. When you share your suffering, you free yourself from the obligation of silence. When you share your suffering, you free others from the obligation of silence. When you share your suffering, you give others permission to do the same. Give yourself the gift of voice, and you will give others the same. Today's episode will also be a bit hybrid because we're going to talk about how we're going to talk about like the statistics and the research behind eating disorders on college campuses. And I'm going to go into depth a little bit more about my own experience as a college student. I'm only a sophomore, so I only have three semesters just barely to go off of. But um, we're going to talk about that a little bit more as well. So two different subtopics within this overall arching topic of eating disorders on college campuses. Oh, and also this was a topic suggested by one of our Instagram followers. So If you would like to suggest a topic, please feel free to head over onto Instagram at Heavier Than I Look, and you can DM us, you can comment, you can just interact with the podcast more, and feel free to suggest a topic. So let's just jump in. Eating disorders on college campuses. As you guys, I'm sure know, college campuses offer a whole host of newness. New classes, new peers, a new city, perhaps a new state for some, new extracurriculars, new independence, a new schedule, and new food. The stress involved in the transition to college can exacerbate already disordered eating in addition to prompt the development of an eating disorder. College students may be more susceptible to developing eating disorders because of their newfound self-reliance and independence in a seemingly unlimited world of food choice and freedom. This can be overwhelming for some, especially if they feel an intense pressure to fit into their new community and conform to conventional physical or body ideals. Dr. Douglas Bennell, clinical director of the Montanito Treatment Center in New York, expresses, The stress of a college schedule, managing a new social context, and dealing with independent living can trigger re-emergent anxiety, or in some cases, a new mental illness. If you have a heavy dose of anxiety and you are in a social environment, and you're constantly exposed to the thin body ideal, that is a perfect storm convergence of factors that can drive a vulnerable individual into an eating disorder. The increased stress levels, rigorous workloads, freedom to eat constantly available food, and 
a sense of displacement coming into college might contribute to an eating disorder arising, resurfacing, or worsening for many young men and women. And then we also have the trope of the freshman 15, which I'm sure you guys have heard of, which often is used as a fear tactic to warn against the unyielding freedom when it comes to eating or drinking in college. And for those who are not aware, the freshman 15 refers to the expected 15-pound weight gain when going to college. Studies suggest that college students' weight does fluctuate, either in weight gain or weight loss, yet it can't be codified to a specific number gained or lost. And because of a fear of a shifting body weight or appearance, unhealthy behaviors may develop. Also, in terms of college culture, much harmful language has been normalized that often mirror eating disorder behaviors and thus are very toxic behaviors. So this includes the the phrase pulling trig, which is self-induced vomiting to combat the overconsumption of alcohol. Or um, you might like refuse food before a night out to have more fun because a smaller amount of alcohol will affect you more if you have less food in your stomach or other, you know, kind of fasting or purging rituals that a lot of college students engage within. And then you have that in addition to the introduction of specific groups. So whether it be athletic teams, Greek life, different groups like that, you have these external pressures that are imposed by such environments and can result in a weight-related and food-related distorted thought, and thus behavior. Toxic habits imposed by drinking culture, Greek life, or athletic groups become the norm, and thus disordered eating and college culture become intertwined seamlessly. Now I have this little, I don't know if I would call it a questionnaire, but just a couple of statements for anybody listening that you might just consider um, in evaluating your own relationship with food in your body. So number one, just, just consider these statements as I read along. Number one, I'm preoccupied with the desire to be thinner. Number two, I'm terrified about gaining weight. Number three, I feel that food controls my life. Number four, My day revolves around the number on the scale and its changes. Number five, I watch what other people eat and use that to determine what and how much I will eat. Number six, often I eat when I'm not hungry. Number seven, often I do not eat when I am hungry. Number eight, I feel guilty after meals. Number nine, I purge after meals. Number ten, I have certain rituals around eating that must be followed at all times. Number 11, I react to stressful situations with the manipulation of eating habits or with food. Number 12, exercise gets in the way of my job, school, work, daily activities. Number 13, eating or not eating gets in the way of my job, school, work, daily activities. Number 14, I often feel out of control around food. And then number 15, if only I were thinner, my life would be better. If you answered yes to these statements, there may be a reason for concern. This is not to say that you have an eating disorder, but it may suggest that your relationship with food or your body is unhealthy. These 15 statements won't determine the existence of an ED in your life, nor will they determine your susceptibility to develop an ED yet they are a tool to assess the role of eating and exercise and food in your life because these are things that we constantly need to check in on. Even as a college student, constantly check in on your relationship with yourself, with food, with exercise. How are you framing these things in your life? How are you treating these things in your life? And if it's not in a positive way, And if it's interrupting your daily life, that might be a reason for concern. EDs are incredibly complex. They're interwoven with biological, psychological, and physiological merits, of which can't be simply determined with 15 statements. 
yeah, this is a starting point. This is a tool to use in order to assess your relationship with yourself, with food, with exercise. If you do feel that you are suffering, know that you are not alone. In fact, the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA, contends that between 10 to 20% of women and 4 to 10% of men in college suffer from an eating disorder. And these rates are on the rise. What's really unfortunate with those who are struggling with an eating disorder throughout college, whether it's arising, resurfacing, or worsening, treatment is very limited and very misunderstood. A typical range for outpatient treatment for those with eating disorders can range from 30 sessions to 7 years. So college students are really unlikely to receive adequate treatment. And in my research, what I found was interesting is that many college students do not realize that they have an eating disorder or are not aware of treatment options or feel too embarrassed to seek treatment or they worry about being anonymous with their treatment. So a lot of these concerns we see across college students, across all years of of being in college, and it's clearly a problem. You know, we clearly have some work to do regarding eating disorder awareness, regarding treatment awareness on campus, regarding the campus opportunities that are open for students who are looking to seek help. Um, And I hope this podcast is a step in the right direction. I hope this podcast will be able to help people either recognize that they might have an unhealthy relationship with food or with their bodies or be aware that they're not alone or be aware that treatment options are available and that treatment can help. Although I'm only a sophomore in college, I've had to navigate what it's like to suffer from and recover from an eating disorder during my time away from home. And I discussed briefly my experience during my freshman year of college during episode two, which if you'd like to look back at, you are totally welcome to. But I'm going to use the space today to go a little bit more in depth about my experience with an eating disorder during college. So... As I talked about before, my eating disorder before coming into college was unseen, unheard. It was very it was a very silent experience as I had mentioned before. It was it was silent suffering until my senior year of high school the you know the Spring, I believe, of my senior year of high school was actually the first time I literally ever muttered the phrase eating disorder and ever aligned it with myself in any way, shape, or form. So that was a big deal for me. And I kind of thought it was all solved. (laughs) I thought just me saying that I had an eating disorder would just solve all my problems and that because I wasn't really restricting anymore and that I wasn't having issues with like a lot of like health issues in terms of lack of menstruation or, you know, being really cold all the time or losing hair or, you know, any of those kind of health consequences of anorexia. I thought because I didn't really have those anymore and because I was on the opposite side of the spectrum in terms of eating too much and and gaining weight and all those things, I just thought that completely discounted my experience with an eating disorder and that I didn't have the right to seek treatment, nor did I need to. I was wrong. I was very, very wrong. And coming into college, I thought all of those problems were done. I thought all those those issues were solved. Um, and my first semester, as I talked about before, was blindingly euphoric um, because I had virtually four months of not thinking a week a wink about food about my weight about my body I had not brought a scale with me which was the best decision I've ever made um, because I hadn't stepped on the scale at all during those four months and that was 
the first time in four or five years where I had not stepped on a scale daily. And it was just incredibly liberating. And I also was surrounded by people who had pretty normative eating practices, which was great because I got to rectify my own unhealthy ones. So it was great. My first semester of college was tremendous. Went home for Thanksgiving break. I was there for four days. I probably got upwards of 10 comments on, on how my body looked. And I probably saw a total of like 10 or 15 people over Thanksgiving break. And uh, nearly every single person commented on on how I looked to be less, how I looked to have lost weight. Before going into Thanksgiving break, I had no intention of stepping on a scale because for four months it was the most liberating thing of my life. But then when every single person you know comments on how much weight you lost and how you look to be great and you look to be, you know, you look to be, you, you're beautiful and all this. And I just, I, I couldn't help myself. My eating disorder had reared its head once again and I stepped on a scale and it was the last thing I did before leaving to go back to school. And it changed my life. I stepped on a scale and realized I had lost upwards of 10 pounds in four months. And I had not lost weight in a long, long time. And it was that desire was always kind of lurking at the back of my brain. And I didn't think it would come back. And I didn't think it was still there. And it was. And then all of a sudden it wasn't enough. 10 pounds had been a landmark in my eating disorder journey. And because it was a landmark that I felt like I had finally regained in some way, it became the all-consuming factor of my life. I came back from Thanksgiving break, and we had about two and a half weeks before going back for Christmas break, or, you know, for the holidays. And, uh, I completely changed everything that I was doing, which is really like counterintuitive considering that I lost 10 pounds, just not even thinking about it. But I decided 10 pounds wasn't enough. And uh, then all of a sudden I was getting up super early every morning, exercising, running on the treadmill, controlling what I ate, controlling what I put in my mouth and not, and, and being very restrictive about it. I, I, was thrilled by hunger pains again. Which was really unfortunate. And it was two and a half weeks leading up, leading up. I'm preparing, I'm preparing, I'm, I'm preparing to step on the scale. That was the big thing I was going to do when I got home. I didn't really care about anything else. It was, it was just the, the scale. And uh, I went home, said hello to my family, hugged my mom and dad, Brought my suitcases upstairs, threw them in my bedroom, and stepped on the scale. That was basically the first thing that I did when I got home. And uh, (laughs) ended up gaining a pound and a half. 1.5 pounds. That's it. That's nothing. That's probably water weight. And that decision and that change, that weight gain, derailed my life. Then all of a sudden, I was consumed. My every single thought was about food. And I was so ashamed of that number. I was so ashamed of gaining weight. And I don't even really consider that to be gaining weight. That's just like daily fluctuations in weight. 
And I, but I was so ashamed of it. And I was, had this, such a warped sense of self-discipline and body image that I thought that that 1.5 pounds could be seen, you know, imprinted on my skin. And then I just overate. I just isolated myself. I turned to food as a coping mechanism to deal with my shame. And it was an incredibly lonely two or three weeks, me being home for, for holiday break. And I thought going back to school would solve all my problems because school before had been my safe haven. So I was really excited to go back to school, but I realized that a change of location won't fix your problems. So I went back to school and and kept binging and kept every single thought was about food and about my body and how much weight I had gained because I I knew at that point I had gained weight. And I could I could tell. And that's not a bad thing, but my eating disorder again had arrived in the beginning of this year, a blazing. It kind of like bombed its way back into my life. Like it just felt completely overwhelming. And I was at school for probably two or three weeks. Just continuing very destructive patterns. I I really, truly did not like myself, did not like where I was at. And uh, I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. And it was at that point, my lowest point, I decided to seek help. So my recovery started in the end of January, early of February of this year. It's crazy how much has happened since then, especially in 2020. 2020 is quite the year to to start trying to recover from an eating disorder. Um, As you guys, I'm sure are well aware. But considering that 2020 has felt like a decade in one year in our world, it has also felt like that in my world, which is kind of ironic. As I had talked about before in terms of getting treatment as a college student and in terms of the accessibility of treatment and the, you know, being anonymous with treatment and finding treatment you feel like could be adequate for you, that was also something I struggled with. I am a gateway student, which means last year I was at Holy Cross College taking classes on both campuses, and we were not allowed the health services at Notre Dame. The health services at Notre Dame had an eating disorder specialist, someone I felt I really could have benefited from seeing because that individual would know specifically what I'm dealing with and how to help me. And I felt like I was at that point where I needed an expert. After being literally turned away from their building, and after explaining my situation and being turned away, I had to figure out how to advocate for myself. I had to figure out how to seek help. And, you know, when they tell you, if you're if you're feeling like this, and they tell you, you know, get help, tell someone. And I tried and it was, it was literally like, no, <laughs> sorry, we can't help you. So I had to figure out something else. And I did. And, and I look back very proud of myself in that moment because like, I don't really know how I did it. I was such, I was at such a bad place And I was so swamped within my eating disorder, within depression, within anxiety, within just like a deep self-hatred that I literally don't know how I picked up the phone and tried to figure out how to seek help because I called many, many places, both in South Bend and, you know, at home as well in Connecticut. And I called many places to try to figure out how to get help. And it It was not easy. A lot of these places had already been booked. 
or we're not adding new clients, which obviously is understandable. But hearing no many, many times, you start to just want to give up. At one point, I was like, should I even stay here? Like, should I even stay in school? Because I can't keep doing school if I'm going to, if I need to work on my internal self. Eventually, I was able to get the help that I deserved. I met with a counselor at Holy Cross who was not an eating disorder specialist but single-handedly like changed the course of my life because I was now able to voice my pain to someone, to talk about the past, to discover a lot of potential risk factors that were in my past that contributed to this. And overall, just learning that there was nothing inherently wrong with me and that I deserve to be heard. So reducing those barriers that limit those wanting to recover, especially in college students who are dealing with a lot of stress and just a completely different lifestyle, especially right now. Like, come on, it is just, we're dealing with so much as college students, that reducing those barriers for for mental health treatment and recovery is so important, is so important. I really cannot stress that enough. Um, But I hope this podcast helps in some way. I really do. So now we kind of transition I go home, we're pulled mid-March from school. We're told to, you know, take our online classes. I go home for quarantine. I'm home for about five or six months. Not something I'd expected as a college student, but we're going to talk about that part of it more in depth next week. Eating disorders during quarantine, but I want to talk about specifically my experience as a sophomore now. This is not something I touched on in the episode two of uh, my eating disorder story, but I think is really important. And it's kind of interesting because it's October 11th. I've been at school for roughly two and a half months. So I'm basically going to chronicle how these two and a half months have been. Because during quarantine, it was, it was recovery deeply profoundly recovery and deeply profoundly healing for five six months because that's really all I had to focus on and again we'll talk more about that in depth but I come back to school and I feel like honest to god I feel like my relationship with myself my relationship with food I feel like both of those things are are very much healed and Come back to school, move myself in. I'm in a single this year because Gateway's got last choice for housing, basically. So single was not my desired choice. Singles do have pros and cons for sure, but um, I was in a single. I was a little bit worried about being isolated and lonely because eating disorders are inherently isolating and lonely. (laughs) So I didn't want my loneliness and isolation being in a single to affect my eating disorder recovery. It did. But I come back to school in the beginning of August. And for about three weeks or so, I was totally good. I was eating to to satiety. I was eating whatever I wanted. But eating, you know, what made me feel good. I felt good about how I looked. I was happy. And then 
there was kind of a mountain of stress that we all had to deal with. Notre Dame, after its first couple of weeks back at school, faced an outbreak, a coronavirus outbreak, of a couple hundred students. And Father John Jenkins, the president of the university, made an announcement that we were going to go in lockdown, basically. And what lockdown means is that and I believe this was in mid to late August. Yeah, so we so we were going to take online classes, switch to an online format. We were going to, we, we had to eat either outside or in our own dorm rooms. And I say the eating guideline first because I think you guys know how much that would affect me. <laughs> All the other guidelines about not going in places and, you know, staying away from certain people who may have been affected or all those guidelines about the hours and the mask wearing and the social distancing, of course, and all of these things. They didn't really affect me, <laughs> but the eating one did. <laughs> um, pretty on brand there. <laughs> but so I'm in lockdown. A couple of my friends are in quarantine. None of them had COVID, but they were contact traced, so they had to go in quarantine. So already we are socially limited. And then all of a sudden, some of my friends are in quarantine. I'm in isolation, basically, in my room. I can only go out to dining halls. All the other buildings are closed. I'm taking all my online classes. It is mentally and physically draining. You don't realize that sitting around on your computer and on Zoom all day in your dorm is going to be draining, but there is a screen fatigue, and I believe that wholeheartedly. And that, in addition to just eating in solitude, was very difficult for me. And just the stress of shifting to an online format and not, like, literally John Jenkins was like, President, sorry, President Jenkins <laughs> said, we don't know where you're going to be in two weeks. You either could be on a flight home or you can stay. But like figure it out. Basically, that was the message. Like get it together and you can stay. And if not, see ya. So that was incredibly disorienting to hear because I had finally felt that I, my feet were grounded, that I had figured out a, a schedule that worked for me had gotten into this routine, had really started to enjoy my classes and get excited about them and get excited about all the extracurriculars that I was planning on doing. And then all of a sudden, it was like that that ground was ripped out from under me and it just was some completely disorienting and dizzying. And for someone who's in recovery for eat, an eating disorder or any kind of mental illness and trying to heal, that was so disorienting. That was dizzying. And I think my response to all of that stress was to relapse. And I haven't really talked about this relapse in the beginning of this year, in the beginning of this school year, just a couple weeks ago, <laughs> because it, it does feel very recent. You know, it does feel very raw. But I think it's important to talk about because it is part of my experience as a college student. So then in lockdown, I would really only eat meals alone. And I would alter my schedule so that no one would be able to see me eating because I was very shameful of that practice. And then soon enough, no food was off limits. I would eat anything and everything, and I couldn't stop myself from eating. The pendulum had swung back again, and all of a sudden I felt like I was dealing with what I was dealing with back in January of this year. I would eat like a very filling breakfast and then like hide my swollen stomach under my clothes and then return to my dorm room and just feel completely like just, I was like distressed and I was discomforted and it wouldn't just be breakfast that was like really just filling and made me feel very swollen. 
It was like pretty much every meal and pretty much the entire day. Because your body's trying to adjust to that kind of consumption. And it was necessary. It was completely, completely necessary in hindsight because I had to fix my mind's relationship with food yet again. It was a relapse nonetheless, but it was completely necessary. But I, I just, I felt completely uncomfortable and bloated. Couldn't escape the desire for food. Yet I also couldn't escape the discomfort that followed my desire for food or my intake of food. And it was kind of a time of pretty deep sadness. You don't realize how much that being social and being with people you love can influence how you feel, but it really truly does. And when those people were taken from me, whether in quarantine or just because of the guidelines of lockdown, it was really tough. And I don't claim to be the only person that had a tough time during that. I know it was probably tough for a lot of people, but it was very tough. So I kind of hid myself because I was really shameful of relapsing, especially when I had confessed to a lot of people about how much I had recovered and how much I had healed. And I didn't want to tell people, I messed up, you know, or this happened again and I ruined it. That's, that's what was going around in my brain and I didn't want to tell people that. And then kind of branching off from my eating disorder stuff, I dealt with a lot of panic attacks. And that was a new sensation for me because I had never really dealt with panic attacks before. I dealt with them a, a little bit at the beginning of this year. But uh, to the one of them, my friends and I were out. We went out one night and I was wearing a pretty revealing outfit. And I literally, I felt so swollen and so uncomfortable. And like everyone could see my weight gain. Which probably was true to an extent. But it wasn't something that I should have been really worried about with my friends, you know. My friends are there to support me. But we got to the place that we were going and... I literally could not be there another second. I, I definitely did panic. And that was completely new for me. And I had to leave. And my friends, being the tremendous people they are, left with me. But I dealt with these panic attacks again during this year. About a month or so ago, maybe a month and a half ago. And this started, I was continuing on my intuitive eating kind of style. But then all of a sudden I was binging and, and this started because one fateful night, I think it was this, this was in August, I zipped up a dress that I've kept ever since my freshman year in high school. It fit then when I was at my lowest weight and I held on to it even, af even after I gained enough weight to know that I wouldn't fit into it, into it again. <laughs> But I held on to it, and I, of course, I brought it to college with me. And it fit when I was a freshman, and yet it didn't fit again until this past July. So I had lost weight during recovery. Not intentionally, but that was my body getting back to its set point. And then, so in July of this year, so after roughly four months of going all in with my eating, which means eating to full satiety, and honoring any hunger cues, either physical or mental, we're going to talk about more about the all-in method in another episode, but my hunger cues felt regulated. Food no longer had the alluring, forbidden quality it had for years and years before, and my appetite had significantly decreased. Weight loss in my recovery completely caught me off guard, and it's not universal, so that's not an expectation that anyone should have in recovery, but... And like, in fact, weight gain is generally the expectation for those in recovery from eating disorders. But um, 
I was just so disoriented with weight loss. And then all of a sudden, in August of this year, I could, or sorry, in July of this year, I could fully zip up this dress and wear it comfortably. And then in August, I zipped up the dress and realized it fit a bit tighter than usual. And that doesn't seem very, that seems very trivial. You know, like a dress is tight, Kira, like get over yourself. But again, like my world came tumbling down. And this is someone, like these triggers, as we had talked about before, the clothes, the weight, they have a real tremendous profound effect. And in, in my eating disorder, I had done a, my fair share of weight gain that when I lost weight, it was very disorienting. So then all of a sudden, after I zipped up the dress and it was tight and I was alone in lockdown, all of a sudden, all I could do, it was, you know, it was all I could do to not roll up in a ball and just hide from the world. I thought I had undone six months of recovery with one night of a tight dress. And I was devastated. I was confused. I was filled with shame. And then for roughly six weeks afterwards, I faced an almost redo of earlier this year. I was overeating to the point of extreme discomfort. I cried myself to sleep. I felt alone. And I was confined to my dorm room. And it felt like endless darkness. Again, I was so, this was my stress response. We were threatened with returning home because of the COVID outbreak. And my entire life was literally just uprooted. My life had changed more in that one fateful Tuesday when President Jenkins made that announcement, more than it had in in months beforehand. And I had a panic attack. And then I fell into a lot of regressive behaviors. I would do mirror checks several times a day to determine how my body had unwound, how much progress I had undone in literally just a couple of weeks or a couple of nights. And I thought my, my physical appearance was the sole indication of my progress in recovery. So my panic attacks had returned. Interestingly enough, this podcast was born in those moments. I truly felt that there was no one I could turn to in that moment of, of deep, deep panic, which was completely false. It was an internalized belief, no doubt. But I decided to open up the voice memo app on my, on my cell phone and speak. I spoke of pain, of terror, of panic, of shame. It was weirdly instinctual to voice my pain onto my voice memo app. And I felt just as worse as I did during the worst of my eating disorder. But it was telling of how much I had grown because I was taking steps to confront that pain. I had to speak aloud what I was going through to myself. And similar to my journaling, I resulted in a recognition of my suffering. I no longer would disassociate Instead, I was allowing myself an outlet of voice. And although no one might ever hear the recording, I had it for myself. And that was enough. And these voice memos are not jolly old fun things to listen to. (laughs) They are generally me just crying and expressing just a hatred towards myself how I can't stand, stand to be seen, how, how ashamed I was, how I felt like I'd fallen in, how I'd taken away from who I was and who, who, you know, what I thought I had constructed of myself. It was an endless cycle of self-hatred, self-pity, shame. Felt like I never had refuge from it. So it was, it was a very treacherous time. And it was exhausting. It was, it was truly, truly exhausting. After my one panic attack, I literally couldn't do anything the next day. It just takes so much out of you. 
Um, but again, in an effort to remain vigilant about my thoughts, about my behaviors, about my attitudes, about everything that was happening to me, I voice memoed it. And I also just set up several protective measures for myself. I said, no more mirror checks. I said, let's eat mindfully. Do nothing else while eating. Enjoy the sensations of eating. Non-triggering clothing. My friends here know how much I love oversized clothing because it's non-triggering. I have not put on that dress again. And I really don't think I will for a long time until I feel like I can handle it. Um, but it's exhausting to have to constantly check up on yourself and try to reel from some really like really bad emotional pain but it's like kind of comforting looking back because for all my listeners know that this podcast was literally born of me at my lowest never-ending tears uncontrollable panic profound pain not knowing how I was going to get through the night you are not alone The, vo- the voice memos turned into heavier than I look this podcast. I never had thought about doing a podcast before the voice memos, but the vo- <laughs> those voice memos kind of transformed my life. <laughs> kind of funny. Um, and again, like this suffering is inevitable and it happens to everyone. Yet this suffering is also meaningful. I have found meaning of my suffering through this podcast. And by finding meaning in my own suffering, I hope to help confront and find meaning in suffering for others, to help heal together. Again, this podcast aims to empower survivors, to educate listeners, to foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. They demand silence. And this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. Like I said before, gift gift yourself your voice. It is a gift. And when you do it for yourself, you give others that same gift. I want to share before we do our, our art share, because it's a great art share today, but I want to share a, a, um, a letter that I wrote to myself. And this is before my experience suffering in the beginning of my sophomore year of college, but this is a reflection on my freshman year of college, which was very instrumental in my eating disorder recovery. Um, and I thought it would be kind of fun to share with you guys because I wrote this just as I was starting recovery. So just in, I believe, April of this year, And I wrote this letter to myself, and I think it really kind of encapsulates all that I was dealing with and still deal with. And this is a letter that I hope to continue to confront. But this is what I write. I say, Dear Kira, this will be a transformative and cathartic year for you. It is a year that you will encounter many obstacles and unexpected challenges, yet will breed a more confident, more zealous you. You started the year unsure of how you might fit into the infancy of the gateway paradigm. Almost immediately, however, you met seven people that would undoubtedly change the course in your life. They allowed you to be yourself, and even more, they celebrated you for it. This ardor must not go unnoticed, and they are accredited with a better version of Kira. Your first semester will be blindingly euphoric. You will feel an acute sense of belonging and normalcy that before then you had never quite grasped. During those fateful four months, you will be welcomed for all of your idiosyncrasies and become an incredible friend to others and to yourself. You will no longer wonder how much little space you can comprise, but instead wonder how that space, about the space that you inhabit, hoping it is one filled with love and sympathy for others. The friendship with yourself will blister and burn in certain times. Yet ultimately, gentle prodding will converge to an unprecedented amount of mercy for past battles and demons. For one of the first times in your life, you will glimpse complete and blissful happiness, a happiness that forces a more confident you, one that charts a new path of discernment. You will learn what it means to learn, 
to deeply engross yourself in various facets of knowledge and experience. This achievement will encourage a tenacity once unclaimed and spur a healing that will rescue you from deep chasms left untouched. Your second semester will be a test in the face of panic, one felt personally for many months and then reverberated into a world of suffering. You will learn the power of companionship and revelation as you slowly start to collect the broken shards of your identity that were hidden inside yourself. A lot of this self-discovery will come in the form of various courses, including your first FTT course at Notre Dame and a reclaiming of your faith through theology at Holy Cross. However, a lot of this self-discovery comes in the form of new relationships, ones that provoke a broader understanding of self. These relationships will be formed both at Notre Dame and Holy Cross and will help you navigate the dual identity of which you inhabit. You will readjust your goal-setting narrative, untangling your warped sense of self-discipline. You will redefine your version of success and ambition. You will unwind the roots of your self-concept, hoping to discover the why of yourself. You will realize that God reveals the human person unto herself, and this undoing results from unmitigated lack of control. Welcome to Notre Dame. Your friend, Kira. (laughs) So that was a letter that I wrote to myself that I thought would be kind of fun to share because I think it's a great look back on my freshman year. Um, Now, most excited, I'm so excited for this. Okay, art and insight share. So as you guys know, I like to share a piece of art or insight every single episode to give voice to those who are healing and give voice, amplify the voices of those that are healing or perhaps suffering. And this week, I am actually sharing a song. So this song is entitled Beautiful, and it was written by Jaden Lucas, who was someone that I met on the Instagram community a couple of weeks back. Um, And he shared this song on August 4th. It was released on August 4th. And his words describe better than I ever could. So I'm just going to read what he wrote in an Instagram post. Um, And he says, This is an original song I wrote for my older sister, Kiana, who battled with and fully recovered from an eating disorder two years ago. I watched her fight for her life every day, as it was extremely difficult to see her in such despair and faint of heart. I wrote this song during her lowest point, as a reminder of how much she is worth and how much inner beauty she has to share with the world. I wrote it as a reminder to anyone who ever doubts their self-worth that you are so worthy loved and beautiful just the way you are and there's nothing on this earth that can take that beauty away from you as someone with three brothers myself i was deeply moved by the song and wanted to share with you guys today so give me one second
Time to be strong, time to be happy. I'm done with the tears, I'm done with the worry. It's time I could dance, it's time I could start living life. It's time to hold hands. With those who are by my side, I'll live half as long to smile twice as much if it means getting rid of this misery. God, pick up the phone. I can't fly alone. I need someone to tell me that, sister, you. Amazing. Am I right? Okay, so clearly all I got to say, I mean, that, that song is incredible. All I got to say is that Timmy Collin Patrick have some major work to do. <laughs> um, okay, let's, let's just finish up quickly. We don't have a lot of time left. But thank you so much, Jaden Lucas, for letting me share your song. You guys can find him on Spotify. You can find him on Instagram. And I'm also going to... Um, I'll I'll post his like his his handle in in the description. But great, love him. Okay, next week we will discuss another breathing ground for eating disorders or relapses, which is quarantine. And I'm going to talk about my specific experience during quarantine as well. So listen in on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. And then finally, all new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts by 11:59 p.m. each Sunday night. If you missed the live broadcast, feel free to return old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own story with anorexia, binge eating, and body dysmorphia, you can listen on any of these platforms. And please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit.